you have given us words and hearts to offer to you in praise this morning. We declare that you are holy, that you are completely other and above, and all your attributes resound with the majesty and greatness of a God that we cannot in our finitude even begin to imagine. And yet you have made yourself known. You have condescended to us. You have come to us in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Prior to, you came through your word spoken through prophets. We have the final word from Jesus Christ. You come to us and continue with us. And the promised Holy Spirit that quickens the soul to resurrection life in Christ and guides us in our understanding. And we pray this morning that You would speak to us through Your Word. That You would communicate to us as we open its pages this morning the beauty and glory and holiness holiness of our Almighty God, our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, and that You might shape us through considering the themes of these songs and setting our mind to be renewed according to Scripture, that You might shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful this morning for the opportunity again to gather and open up the Scriptures with you. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand. But before I do, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. While you're turning there, let me mention just briefly why I'd like to ask us to stand. I know we've done this two other messages so far. In the book of Nehemiah, specifically chapter 9, there is a call to the people of God to center their whole life, their nation, their worship, their relationships, once again, on the source of their life and direction, ethics, well-being, constitution, Law, everything, the Word of God. Prior to that redirection, the people of God had been dispersed in exile, oftentimes left aimless and without direction and without a prophet in many cases, and relatively relatively unconnected to the source of their unity. And so when the Lord called them back to be reunited to Himself, He did so in such a way that made the Bible, the Word of God, once again chiefly exalted among them. In Nehemiah chapter 9, I'll just read you a couple of verses before we read our main text this morning. Specifically the ones that bring us into the context of what the nation experienced at this time, well, they included songs like this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. 
Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, the hosts of heaven worship you. And during that time, there was a call for the attention of the people to be brought to bear to the primacy, that is the sufficiency and the priority of the word of God. And in so doing, they stood in the presence of the Lord while the word of God was read and they worshiped. So I'm going to ask you to do that this morning in the spirit of Nehemiah 9. If you are able, would you stand with me and we will read our primary text this morning, just four verses from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. He, that is Christ, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. These things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Kingdom Trans-Historical. Trans means across or above or over. We think of the word transcendent. Transcendent means that which eclipses, overarches, and is superior to anything else. Thus, by that term trans-historical as an adjective to describe the kingdom of God, we understand and I hope scripturally we can make the case this morning that the kingdom that Jesus preached was indeed above and over and superior to all of time, all of history, and consequently any other kingdom, any other space of time, any other segment or section of human record, and indeed it remains and forever will remain the standard of truth, beauty, law, glory, community, purpose, and ultimate of flourishing according to the glory of God forever in manifest glory in heaven, but even beginning as we long for that day in the words of Christ and even prior to in the words of the prophets in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, drawing our attention and our knees to confession and repentance before the Lordship of Christ, saving our souls from the death grip of sin and bringing us into communion with Him and with our fellow brothers and sisters, adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And so all of these terms are incorporated in that idea of kingdom trans-historical. We've mentioned in Matthew chapter 13 that there's three degrees of amplitude, that is power, beauty, or scope, of the kingdom of God that are perhaps illustrated in the planting parables. And the first parable is the parable of the sower, could better perhaps be described as the parable of the soil. It describes the conditions of the individual's heart 
that are conducive to spiritual growth. And there in the first parable we have the first degree of kingdom amplitude. What does the kingdom look like expressed in the heart of an individual? Kingdom individual looks like fertile soil made so by the Holy Spirit, ready to sprout and produce fruit by the power of God to His glory in those He has those He has redeemed. The second stage of amplitude described and illustrated in the planting parables in Matthew 13 perhaps could be called kingdom corporate. This was last week's sermon and theme, the parable of the weeds. And the good seed appears to us in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Goes on to tell us that while the servants were sleeping, the enemy sowed weeds. These weeds and seed and wheat, that is, grow up together. They're allowed to do so concurrently for a time. Yet there comes a time at the harvest When the Lord of the harvest tells the reapers, the angels gather in the weeds first to be burned in bundles, but separate out the wheat to be stored in his barns. And so in this parable, we see the aspects and implications of the kingdom of God corporately for all people, for all time on the earth. Kingdom corporate looks like good seed and weeds growing together, but there is a shelf life for evil. And at such time, There will be ultimate and complete judgment, even as we will be reaped and ransomed as His blood-bought believers by Christ's meritorious work alone into the storehouses of Almighty God. This morning, let's consider the third stage of kingdom amplitude, kingdom transhistorical, if you will. The planting parables have been escalating, and now we have the kingdom of heaven described as a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But when it is sown, it grows, it, and it has grown. It is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree in verse 32 so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The planting parables illustrate the amplitude of the kingdom of God and indeed reach their crescendo. I'm going to argue and try to make the case from greater context of Scripture this morning that the amplitude of the kingdom and its trans-historical implications reaches its crescendo in the mustard seed parable. Though only a few words that Jesus used here to describe the kingdom in this analogy, yet it is saturated with biblical context. Context we'll explore this morning. This parable is also paired or coupled with another parable, the parable of leaven, which is just one verse, verse 33, but illustrates in the same way aspects of the kingdom of God that are indeed pervasive. He told them another parable, 33 reads, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. These four verses are completely thick, weighty, dense. They are full and saturated with historical and prophetic context. Understanding the Old Testament ramifications of Jesus' third great sermon here should infuse us, His followers, His diligent Berean readers, with an acute and enduring sense of divine nationalism, if I could call it that. Divine allegiance, you could say, or patriotism to our King of Kings, King Jesus, and His realm, the Kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of heaven is trans-historically proclaimed from the ministry of its king, Jesus Christ, reminding us that His kingdom eclipses, surpasses, transcends, prevails, exceeds, outshines, subdues, excels, surmounts, and judges every other rule, every other king and kingdom, past, present, and future. And so with that introduction, let me give you a heading for five points this morning. The historical, prophetic, contextual associations of Matthew 13, 31 through 34. So three adjectives, three adjectives, historical, prophetic, and contextual associations of Matthew 13, 31 through 34. I would like to explore briefly this morning the historical context associated with Jesus' parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Also the prophetic context, drawing deeply and richly from the prophets of old, Jesus makes this declaration. I'm going to make that case again from greater Scripture. So we'll have a few places to turn to this morning in our study. Then finally, contextual, meaning all of this shapes the context in which Jesus delivers these words. Now these words describing the kingdom in its trans-historical sense are relatively few. But as is the case throughout Scripture, that doesn't mean they're small or minute in meaning. When Jesus is drawing on this imagery, there's a whole backstory and context from the prophetic declarations of the Scripture that undergird it and give it a force that is certainly staggering. The more we study, I think the more we'll see that is the case. So consider first seed and leaven. The historical, prophetic, and contextual associations of Matthew 13, 31 through 34. First of all, the context of seed and leaven as pictures, parable, analogy. The redemptive historical concept of seed goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. I mentioned to you in a previous message several times. It's a passage worth writing down and committing to memory because it's one of those interpretive milestones in the Word of God, Genesis 3.15. And there the declaration of curse to the serpent, yet hope for mankind, appears in the garden in the very first gospel message we could say. And there is the seed context in which it is delivered. The seed of the woman is said, to be, is, is declared to continue and to one day result in the messianic crushing of the serpent's head. But there is also the seed of the enemy and the seed of Satan, as it were, represented by the unregenerate that will create conflict and problems in this kingdom interim. This concept of seed is indeed a biblical analogy, is extremely rich, And it reminds us of the sovereignty of God, even in His creative intent for what He has laid before us in nature. Consider a seed for a moment. A seed like a mustard seed. I can't tell you exactly how big it is. But we are told in this section, for the sake of illustration, it is comparatively, by multiple percentages and degrees, smaller than the plant it will reproduce. Consider if you're a biologist or something of that sort, and a botanist, you're in the laboratory. Given the highest powered microscope, technology to date can afford you. If you put that mustard seed under the microscope and explored it, 
Would you ever see through that perspective what it will become? No, there are things you cannot see within a seed no matter how closely you look. Mysteriously and powerfully and sovereignly encapsulated by God's purpose and intent and design for that seed inside somehow is the capacity, the potential to produce a flowering plant that is so vast it provides shade for the passerby as well as nesting shelter for birds and animals for acres of circumference where it's planted. This is a powerful picture. Though something might appear insignificant and small to us, and even in our best scientific attempts to explain and understand, we come up short, we have to humbly confess and acquiesce to a wiser God than us. We might say our knowledge is limited. I've discovered everything I can with the tools at my disposal, my scientific faculties. It's amazing, but I have to say, I could have never known by a scientific laboratory experiment with a microscope, microscope alone what this seed will produce. And that's what part of the helpful anal- or that's part of the meaning of this helpful analogy. When we are worried about the kingdom of God or concerned that we don't see it present in our midst today to the degree we wish we could, if we are living in in the midst of an apostate slide where our friends, our family, greater culture, and many we thought were firmly rooted in the faith, unbeknownst to us, they indeed were not, and proved to be what the prior parable had said, seeds planted on shallow soil. It is a great comfort for us to know that the kingdom of God is something like a seed. No matter how closely we analyze it, there is something mysteriously packed into the purposes of God that we are to take by faith, knowing that once we experience and finally behold its full flowering and the full burst into life and the consummate manifest unfolding of God's intended purposes for His kingdom, it will only be underestimated in the short term. It will be something we cannot fathom with our short-sighted minds at this particular time. Know that the kingdom of God is like a seed, Jesus says. A seed in time of famine is indeed the new standard of value. A seed represents survival. It represents future. It represents sustainability. It represents power and a degree of uncertainty, yet faith that it will produce beyond what we could ever imagine if we simply have the patience to wait. Also, seed refers to progeny in Scripture, that which will continue generationally. And these are just a few examples of what's connected to the analogy of seed. But know when Jesus uses this language that the contextual association is rich with meaning. To help us understand this a little bit more, Mark's gospel is helpful in that regard. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. In Mark's gospel, in this section of Jesus' teaching of kingdom comparison by parable as to the nature of the kingdom, as to its amplitude, he chooses two slightly different ways to pair the understanding of the kingdom related to its trans-historical sense. 
Instead of the parable of the weeds as it's given in Matthew, we have a slightly different explanation of the kingdom of God, but it's helpful in Mark 4, 26. He says, And he said, that is Jesus, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Similarly, in Matthew 13, there's harvest language. There is a waiting time in this interim where the kingdom of God is in a growth pattern. But just as Mark declares, though it may seem painfully slow to us and discouraging at times, like every good farmer knows, we may see just a blade. But what will follow? An ear. And after the ear, the grain. And after the grain is ripe in God's perfect time, there will be a sickle that will be brought to bear against that fully ripened fruit, and the harvest will come. This is the way God has chosen in His inscrutable wisdom and glory to unfold His purposes in time. It appears in one sense progressively, a little at a time. But know, whether you're looking at an ear or a blade, that the consummation of what God has purposed is certain. It's as certain as seeds have sprouted in this acreage all around us and have burst forth into newness of life. That we can, we always take for granted, but it's nevertheless amazing. We have a number of oak trees to my right and your left, just outside these windows. And have you ever contemplated or explained to your child that those oak trees started out the size of the end of your thumb as an acorn? To think that an acorn that is so small could burst into life the way those trees now grant shade even to this building keep it slightly cooler, which we're thankful for, not having A.C. in the summer, is an amazing thought. And so it is with the kingdom of God. And these are helpful explanations of what we are beholding before us and also give us faith to endure and should quicken within us a sense of endurance, patience, and also a tenacity to keep on hoeing, tilling, planting, and waiting with expectation Because God's harvest will surely come in due time. Finally, under seed and leaven, we have the picture of leaven itself. Matthew 13, 33, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The use of leaven, which is yeast, a fermentation process, which expands throughout the whole mass And there is not a bit of the bread dough lump that is unaffected by this process. In this passage is a little unique. Usually the leavening process is referred to as a negative in Scripture. That is, just as a little yeast can corrupt or infuse or infect the whole lump of dough, so a little bit of unchecked sin or a little bit of evil can have the same effect. But the great hope of the kingdom of God is this. That just as something can be corrupted and like an infection, disease the whole, so it is with the kingdom of God, only conversely, 
in contradistinction to the positive. Just a small seed of God's definite will and purposes planted in history does and has and will show to have the power to affect the whole, to move completely and totally transforming and infusing the entire mass of history until such time as God is perfectly glorified and His intentions are unfolded in the great history book of heaven one day such that we can see that only a God who knows the end from the beginning, who has all power at His disposal and is all wise, could have planned such a beautiful Transhistorical unfolding of his will and purposes. J. Lightfoot describes the idea of leaven in this way. He says of Jesus' words here, this is clearly, quote, clearly an allusion to the hidden, silent, mysterious, but all pervading, transforming action of the leaven in flour. Again, clearly an allusion to the hidden, Silent, mysterious, but all-pervading and transforming action of the leaven in the flour. And so again, in that explanation and in this picture, we draw hope and encouragement. Though there may be times from our perspective, given our faculties to discern, where it seems as if the kingdom of God is hidden in some way, silent in other ways. Where it's mysterious to us, difficult, defying explanation. Yet, in fact, we can know from Jesus' declaration and helpful analogy that it is pervasive. That it is transforming the whole. And just as the yeast extends throughout the whole of the dough, so the kingdom of God is doing the same. It is working. Working in spite of the powers and the operatives that would seek to thwart its attempts working inevitably towards the end that God has sovereignly declared. And we will see at the consummation of the ages the way every time the enemy has thought he had put a roadblock in God's path. Indeed, it was a stepping stone used by God sovereignly for His will and purposes. And so it is described with seed and leaven. The transhistorical nature of the kingdom of God, though slow to our judgment at times, Silent, hidden, and mysterious, nevertheless, effective and powerful, and moving forward, undaunting in its goal. Number two, the, trans, the historical, prophetic context, contextual association of Matthew 13, 31-34. Point number two, the worldwide dominion imagery of Daniel. Part of the historical context, turn with me if you would to Daniel chapter 4. Part of the historical context that Jesus is drawing on when he speaks these words comes from other language in the prophets. Language that includes the picture of a flowering or a leafing tree spreading its shade-giving branches every direction and providing refuge for creatures. This worldwide dominion imagery is indeed underscored in Daniel and in other places, but notice this dream that Uh, The king has, in this case, Daniel is called to give the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we find this helpful description 
of the picture of tree, of what a tree represents in a kingdom context in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verse 20 and following. Daniel, speaking to the king, says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the fields found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, verse 22, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heaven. And notice here, your dominion to the ends of the earth. So you see this picture of tree with spreading branches, providing shade and refuge, is a picture a worldwide or global or em, like an empire would reach out with dominion and domination through its surrounding provinces. Verse 23, because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. Verse 25, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you. And again, this important phrase, till you know that the Most High rules Till you know that heaven rules, excuse me, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. I skipped forward, I'll back up again here. Till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 26, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So do you grasp the concept here? There can be and is only ultimately one branching tree representing ultimate kingdom authority, reaching to heaven and providing refuge for all mankind. The pinnacle of salvation, security, law, righteousness, ethics, salvation, and hope. And that is the kingdom of God. So what happens, the question naturally occurs to us when another authority, a false claim, stands in its place. Naturally, the good judge will cut that tree down. And so it has happened in every obstinate, rebellious, self-deifying kingdom that history has ever known. We might have a few that remain today, but I'm telling you, they will be cut down just like Babylon was cut down, Media Persia was cut down, the Greeks, the Romans, and every other empire marching through history that is presumed to be the tree of trees, the kingdom of kingdoms, the king of kings. What happens? The axe is laid to the root of that false authority claim until, if and until, the leader understands that he serves at the pleasure of the Most High. There is a mustard seed that is planted that is growing and flourishing into a tree, but there can be only one ultimate tree, one ultimate kingdom. 
Jesus declared that it is the kingdom of God. And just like the language in Daniel describes that this tree provides refuge for creatures, for birds, and shade, and the like, and so on, representing an umbrella, a covering for other peoples and nations and ideas and cultures to gather underneath. So it is in the book of Matthew that ultimately this is the exclusive claim of the kingdom of God. Jesus says again, chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel 32, It, meaning the kingdom of God as a mustard seed, is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So then the narrative unfolds. The prophecy is fulfilled exactly to the T because of the hubris, because of the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. He is indeed cut down. His stump is banded for seven seasons. But something happens. His heart changes. Until you know that the Most High rules, we read in verse 32, know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And we know the story. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. But further, we read in verse 34, at the end of day of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now this is the most powerful ruler on the earth at this time. There was no real challenger to his authority, humanly speaking. But there certainly was in heaven itself. Just one touch of his hand and this man is insane, groping about for grass in the fields with his nails growing like talons, having lost his reasoning and becoming a mere beast. At such time, at the end of these days, in the first person we hear the record of a repentant king, verse 34, who got his godly perspective, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will, according to the, among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Verse 36, At the same time, my reason returned to me. As for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my lords, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37, these words are amazing. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There is a worldwide, there is a transhistorical dominion of the kingdom of God. There is but one king, the king of heaven. There is but one ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And the king of heaven rules over Nebuchadnezzar. The king of heaven rules and reigns for all time. In that story I gave you that record in the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's demise and then his repentance and restoration, we see that there were watchers sent from heaven just like there are angels sent for reaping. We see that God has his emissaries, his ambassadors, his messengers to carry out his will. And the message is, if you won't dutifully obey Him like the angel do, yes, sir, your command, your will is my command, 
then God will reduce and cut down the proud. He will humble them and cause them to lose their reasoning for a time until they repent. If grace is extended to us in the short term or to worldly leaders in the short term, or He will destroy them in the ultimate sense, as Matthew 13 declares, when the weeds are separated from the chaff and those who followed any other king than Christ are thrown into the fiery pit to endure the gnashing of teeth and the wrath of the just Almighty in hell eternal. The worldwide domination imagery of the book of Daniel that's reiterated in Matthew chapter 13 envisions, foretells, declares, and inaugurates a kingdom, an empire indeed, with no shelf life. An empire, our kingdom, and the emperor of the land that he owns and rules by creative right, and indeed our hearts by the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, sin-conquering blood, this kingdom has no limit, no end, and no shelf life. It will only grow in manifest degree. Where it might be a shoot, it will become an ear. Where it's just an ear, it will ripen. It will be reaped. And then the sons of the kingdom will shine with the glory of God forever. I find it fascinating. I love those really particular examples that help illustrate points like these that we even have in our own experience. One of them that comes to my mind is Saddam Hussein. There's a picture I saw recently of most of the ruins of Babylon. And the ruins of Babylon are very strange to look at, most of them anyway. They look like the Badlands. That's quite a good description of them. There, you can tell that there's bricks there, but they have eroded and decayed. And they have succumbed to the God over nature, whose reign has reduced them to hills. There is no commerce there. There is no trade There is no glory to a sovereign, to an emperor, manifest in the commerce and the flourishing in that city anymore. There is just a monument to human folly that one can witness on a postcard from the Middle East if it's safe enough to travel there anymore. But there was a recent king, a self-aggrandizing emperor, if you will, who sought to rebuild Babylon. And I'm I'm talking literally. That was Saddam Hussein. In case you didn't know, Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild a large part of Babylon, and indeed he replaced the bricks with new bricks right on top, or he built on top of the old bricks with new bricks, and on many of the bricks was inscribed his own namesake. I find it very interesting, in light of Nebuchadnezzar's story, that this self-aggrandizing king who declared himself a sovereign, and he's going to be the new emperor of the reincarnate Babylon, was reduced to a rat in a hole. Not saying it justifies our war effort, but certainly we can see something of God's justice illustrated in a man who thought he could rule the world, hiding in a hole and eventually destroyed and killed by his own people. This is a good illustration, even in our modern times, of the fate of anyone who claims to be more or other or independent of Christ. There is no shelf life on his empire, but there is indeed a shelf life on every other empire. Number three, historical and prophetic context of the parable of the the mustard seed and the leaven. 
Number three, the noble cedar of Ezekiel. The imagery that Jesus employs in this parable reminds us of another passage of Scripture. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 17. In Ezekiel 17, there are many very interesting and symbol-laden prophecies that are brought forth in Holy Writ. And some of them share the very language that Jesus is using here. And I'm telling you, it's obviously no accident. It would be indeed blasphemous to indicate that it was. And Ezekiel 17, verses 1 and 2, notice first of all that Ezekiel himself refers to a parable. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Again, that term is significant. Word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Now, pause there, flash forward some centuries. What do we have? We have the self-identified Son of Man speaking a parable and speaking a riddle, propounding a riddle through Jesus' life and ministry to the house of Israel. Isn't that amazing? From the introductory phrases of this oracle from Ezekiel, we have the fulfillment of the Son of Man and the nature of speaking and the prophetic intent and context and the audience, the house of Israel, reiterated in Jesus' own ministry. It goes on with similar imagery that we have explored in Matthew. There's a seed of the land planted on fertile soil, becomes a low spreading vine in verse 6. It goes on to declare some of these prophetic realities in verse 22 and 24. We pick up on this imagery in contrast to these false plantings that Ezekiel has just identified. We have this prophecy, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear, notice, branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Listen further. And under it, will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Drying up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This noble cedar of Ezekiel, for those that had ears to hear, the house of Israel should have immediately recognized this lowly man, apparently so, born in a manger. Is this sprig that God Himself has taken? He is the one of lowly means who will be planted by God's sovereign hand that will grow up as a noble cedar and destroy and eclipse and surpass and transcend and prevail against and exceed and outshine and subdue and excel and surmount and indeed judge every other tree, every other kingdom planting. And this is indeed what Jesus was declaring to the house of Israel in Matthew 13. This day has come. It's being fulfilled before you. There is a noble cedar that has sprouted in my ministry. 
that will grow into a tree that will eclipse every other kingdom and in its branches and only in its redemptive fruit will you find safety. Will you find safe haven, salvation. Earlier in this declaration in Ezekiel 17, there's other imagery that you can explore at greater length on your own time. There's an eagle and vine relationship. And this is a relationship between other operatives. They could be compared perhaps to the enemies of the kingdom that sow seeds at the nighttime when the uh, servants of the master are sleeping. And although the vine spreads and endures for a season and seems formidable and discouraging to the people in exile at the time, or even those of us who sometimes feel marginalized believers in our, as believers in our own wicked culture, as exiled, spiritually speaking, what we find in hopeful declaration in these parables and examples in Jesus' fulfillment is that these other inferior relationships between operatives and kingdoms will ultimately be turned on themselves and will be their own undoing. But the kingdom that will endure, be fruitful, will stand eternal is the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord. The final language, the closing language of this oracle is so powerful, especially in the first person as the Holy Lord of glory declares, I myself, verse 22, will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I bring low the high tree later in verse 24. I am the Lord in closing. I have spoken. I will do it. Will those purposes ever be thwarted? Absolutely not. Anyone who tries will only end up inevitably serving his ends. This, this I myself analogy speaks to the incarnation. There will be one who comes who is a man, the Son of Man, and who is the Son of God. And when the Son of Man comes, who is also God, I myself is fulfilled before our eyes and in our ears. The Lord's intent and personal covenant and declaration and promise will be manifest in our ears. And so it is. In the New Testament, in the message of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, the noble cedar has risen in time. And its transhistorical established power and fruit will endure forever and for all of time. Number four, the historical prophetic context associated with Matthew 13. Number four, the judgment parables of Ezekiel. This isn't the first or the last time, in the last time that Ezekiel uses this kind of language, turn over to chapter 31. There's two parables of judgment here. One is a description of what happened to the nation of Assyria. That's an object lesson and declaration by a holy judgment oracle of what will happen to the nation of Egypt. So these are the oppressors of the people of God. And even though they're used as pawns in the hand of the master chess player, if we can use an analogy that crass almighty God for his purposes and intent for his people. That is, God raised up wicked nations to chastise his elect, his people, nationally speaking. They will not escape judgment. And here we have the declaration of the kind of judgment and the terms and the explanation and helpful analogies that describe what happens to a nation like Assyria when they stand in stark opposition to the will and holy law of God. And also, so it will be 
in this section with Egypt. Chapter 3, rewind it, verse, I'm sorry, 31, chapter 31, verse 2. Son of man, again, I love that description of Ezekiel because he is a prophetic picture of the Son of Man who will come, the prophet of prophets, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, Son of Man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? So who would you compare yourself to? Is there other empires that you think you eclipse or compare to, like Babylon of old? Like what if you picked Assyria, for instance, verse 3, Behold, Assyria was like a cedar in Lebanon. So there it is again, this tree imagery describing what a kingdom with power looks like. Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade of towering height, its top among the clouds. Later on, we see what happens to this tree, and as you might guess, it is utterly cut down. In verse 6, but before we get that message, we read in verse 6, all the birds of heaven made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth. To their young and under its shadow lived all great nations. And later, as we continue to read in this section, verses 10 through 14, describe the demise of this cedar that was Assyria. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height. I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. Notice the identity of the great sovereign. Verse 11, I will give it into the hand of, the, of a mighty one of the nations. We identify the fulfillment of that phrase in Jesus Christ as He has declared His own authority in Matthew 13, culminating in His great commission declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He shall surely deal back in Ezekiel 31, 11, He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken. In all the ravines of the land and all the people of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of heaven, on its branches all the beasts of the field. Verse 14, all this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. Reminds us of the Tower of Babel, reminds us of Babylon. For they are given over to death to the world below, among the children of man, those who go down to the pit. And in this judgment parable, Assyria is compared to a tree who is cut down. It once was branching, it appeared impressive to some for a short time, but its evil had a shelf life, and it was destroyed, and its ultimate demise is indeed the pit of hell, as it were. Now, as the prophet continues to declare what will be the just end of a nation like Egypt, who stands against and in opposition to God's will and purposes, and does not confess with Nebuchadnezzar that the king of heaven rules and reigns over all, He continues to say to this wicked nation in chapter 32, verse 2, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations. 
but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, notice this imagery, verse 3, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. And I will cast you on the ground, on the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of heaven to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 13. And we're starting to get a fuller, more saturated view of the context behind even the order and the kind of parables that Jesus declared. Jesus declares this planting, this tree parable, the smallest of seeds that grows larger than all the garden plants, becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. But what parable does he follow with? Well, there is one that's of particular note compared to the judgment parables of Ezekiel in chapter 32 of that book. And we find it in verse 47 of Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like what? It's like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Remember, that's the exact same imagery. That net that would drag through, that would apprehend Egypt. And this is what would happen to Egypt. This will happen at the end of the day to everyone who doesn't bow before the king of kings. When it was full, that is the net, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when Jesus is speaking in these terms, It isn't as if you have a guy that's scratching his head. There's got to be another good way to say this. And so he tries it number six and number seven time. No, Jesus is not searching for ways to come at it at another angle just for rhetoric's sake. Jesus is declaring in his own ministry that the prophetic pictures of judgment in old are indeed the power within his own hand. And this great cedar that is springing up into life as the incarnation inaugurates his redemption in time such that the final payment for man's sins will soon be accomplished. So we are told that judgment for all who deny that only way of salvation will soon be separated from that net of his catch or from that sickle in his reaping only to be judged and to be utterly separated from the favor of God forever. The context of the history and the prophecy behind these parables is staggering and rich. And the final point along these lines comes from the parables, if we could call them that, better termed psalms of Asaph. Consider the parables or psalms of Asaph. Turn with me quickly to Psalm 78. I want to read to you the Old Testament passage that is indeed quoted in Matthew 13. And Matthew 13, after this pairing of kingdom parable, mustard seed and leaven, in verse 34 and 35, we read all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Who was the prophet? Well, primarily, 
in this section, most specifically, it was the prophet Asaph, who was also a psalmist. And here is his quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That language comes from Psalm 78, verse 1. Notice in the title, A Maskil of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. What does that remind you of? He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. What does that remind you of? The confusion of the hearers. Even the confusion of the disciples, who without explanation from the mouth of Christ himself, did not understand what he spoke of. But it was certainly true, though mysterious. And it was words, and they were words that were rich with historical and prophetic meaning. And this was the kind of thing that was understood by those who treasured God's wisdom of old. Indeed, psalmists like Asaph, who said in similar language, Centuries before, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Verse 3, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. So here we see the context of biblical understanding assumes a transhistorical knowledge of what's going on. It assumes a generational commitment to God's unfolding revelation. Things that our fathers have told us. We must familiarize ourselves by way of application with the whole counsel of God even as we are endeavoring to do this morning. Verse 4, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He goes on to say a few of those wonders and then in contradistinction describes the fate of those who ignore them. I would venture to say, if the sons of Asaph had been diligently taught and were alive at the time of Jesus' teaching, they would indeed would have been among the few who had ears to hear because they understood a certain fear of the Lord that is required to sit at the feet of wisdom personified and understand what He is saying. They understand that their mere experience, their mere reasoning is not enough to ascertain the truth of what is therein contained. Asaph and his sons knew, and there was a generational commitment. There was a great blessing, and generations of psalmists, from the point of David's commission of Asaph, all the way to the restructuring in Chronicles, this family continued to worship the Lord, singing parables, singing psalms for God's people. And because of their commitment to do that, they were part of the remnant that retained the truth. May we be found, spiritually speaking, among them today, We would love and value the parables of old and the secret things of old and see them fulfilled in our Lord Christ. Asaph is referred to as a seer. That is a prophet. 1 Chronicles 16, 4-5, specifically a prophet who is gifted by the Lord to see beyond his own experience, to see beyond his own time, who understands the generational significance and the transhistorical continuity and beauty of the kingdom of God. Asaph was this kind of man, and his confessions of faith were generationally grounded he was the senior, this was the senior family of musicians that endured throughout Israel's history in the Old Covenant, singing songs that we still sing today and announcing truths that are timeless and rich for us even this morning. The Asaph Psalter 
That is, the psalms written by Asaph include Psalm 50, and then there's a grouping of 10, Psalms 73 through 83. And I'll tell you, I read them over this week, trying to identify themes among them. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in further study based on this message, to read them together. And I trust you will find that there are themes that celebrate the trans-historical, messianic mysteries of Almighty God. Some of these psalms, many of them, just about all, have at least an aspect about them that are politically imprecatory. That means they pray and celebrate a curse upon a false authority who would be even a political ruler who would oppose God's wills and in, God's will and intentions. Would that the false authorities of today would read these politically imprecatory psalms and worship and serve the Lord in fear as they rule, as Nebuchadnezzar was taught by his journey as a cow to appreciate. These psalms, are they celebrate and proclaim the self-authenticating sovereignty of God. That is, God reveals by His own works, His own will and power. In the parting of the Red Sea, in the preservation of His people, in bringing them into the promised land, in providing altar experiences and interventions time and again to communicate by condescension His glory to His people. There's one example in the interest of time. I don't think we'll explore it in detail this morning. But there's son of man language in Psalm 80. I just can't resist, but I'm going to read it. Psalm 80, verses 8 and following. This is one of the, one of the psalms in the collection of those by Asaph. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. You see what I mean? I think Asaph would have recognized the Messiah. Here was one, a vine that came out of Egypt. Insignificant as a baby, but significant in that Christ fulfilled these prophecies that Asaph himself sang of. The vine out of Egypt, what do we think of? Christ, we think of Moses. We think of the messianic pictures that prefigured Christ's arrival. The mountains were, sorry, verse 9, he cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Notice verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shade. And indeed, this vine we see growing into a mighty tree. Here we have the glorious cedar, Jesus Christ, spreading his branches out and covering the earth from sea to sea, even as His glory will and is in the process of transforming this whole, the whole of this world in history. In verse 11, it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine. The stalk that your right hand planted, and for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man whom you have made strong for yourself. Who is this man? 
Jesus self-identifies again as the Son of Man, Himself as the Son of Man. That is not a self-deprecating term. The Son of Man refers to Psalm 80. It refers to Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the one who is exalted, indeed, as Asaph proclaimed, at the right hand of the Father. The Son of Man is the one who is that vine that starts out small, that grows to eclipse, that eventually seeks and executes vengeance on all his enemies, ransoms his own, and judges all who are outside of his salvation. This is the Son of Man. This is the vine. And Asaph's language in his Psalms is replete with this kind of imagery. And thus the parables of Asaph are referred to there in the same section of Jesus' own parables. And it's no surprise, drawing together these themes fulfilled in Christ. And so our context this morning, as we consider some of the weight, some of the context, some of the historical and prophetic contextual association that undergirds Matthew 13, how should that make us feel. By way of application this morning, I would counsel us, encourage and exhort us to draw deeply on this wellspring of truth. Because we live in a time, as I judge it, that is chronicling in real time the last stand of the scientific social state versus the kingdom of God. I was listening to, I think Henry Kissinger died a couple weeks ago, right? Last week? Some, no, uh, Hopefully I didn't give a premature eulogy here. Um, John McCain was speaking at a Henry Kissinger event. Might have been his funeral. (laughs) Um, And he said something honorable about the man. And I I have to say, by biblical standards, it indeed was honorable. It illustrated how a principle was important. You can find the context of those remarks. But he identified the source of Henry Kissinger's ethic as realistic... Pardon me as I scratch my head to remember um, classical realism. In other words, for the namesake of classical realism, Henry Kissinger did the right thing by John McCain when he was in prison as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. That is a horrible, blasphemous statement. Just want to apply some discernment here. Judge those men and the the sum of what they have proclaimed in context. Only let me judge this single statement. If you give a declaration as if to say this was the right thing to do for the sake of, in the name of, classical realism, you are on very dangerous territory. Why? Because who owns exclusive rights to what is righteous, what is noble, what is true, what is praiseworthy, and what is of good report? Not the sum of classical understanding and famous people like Socrates, Plato, and all these deified humanistic philosophers, mere men who declared themselves foolish and elevated themselves and their own ethics and understanding and intellect as something that could stand alongside or trump the Almighty and didn't give deference and solidarity and primacy to His Holy Word. No! All of that will be destroyed. That will be destroyed by Jesus Christ. But we live in a day where these kinds of comments are ubiquitous. They come across a wire all the time. And if your discernment is turned on as you're listening to the news, you'll hear about it all the time. You'll hear something that, yes, is truly noble as the Word of God judges it, but listen to the qualification as a statement is given. If they do not root and ground righteousness, 
in Jesus Christ and his immutable, inarguable, and exclusive word, know that you are witnessing something that is aberrant and must be torn down. And whether it's torn down in confession, repentance in each man's heart, which is, I do pray that that would happen, inevitably it will be torn down in their own destruction if that is a statement that reflects indeed where their heart is at. Thus, that makes the illustration to make the case one among a thousand you could pick up from just last week's newsreel that we are living in a context that is chronicling in real time the last stand between something like the scientific social state or the self-aggrandizing humanistic state versus the kingdom of God as I judge it in the Western context. Even, and you probably caught the news this last week, uh, denominations are capitulating to this new ethic and new standards by whole scale adopting a new definition of marriage, not on God's created order and declaration from Christ's word anymore, but on just the social mores and popular thought that the cultural elites seek to promote. And so here we stand. Draw deeply, I would encourage us, church, on the kind of power and source that the context of these parables that Jesus promotes allows us to have at our disposal. Ask yourself this question. Will we be standing with the Son of Man when He is presented fully and finally victorious before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? Because that is the trans-historical reality of the kingdom of God. There will come a day, sooner than later, and indeed will surprise most when this will be ultimately fulfilled. Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's close in prayer. O righteous, just, powerful, and thankfully merciful King of heaven, we, your subjects, confess that your word is truth, that you rule and reign, and we give you permission to govern us. If there's any area of our life, our thinking, our actions, that is as of yet unsanctified and presumes to stand in the way or rob from your ruling and reigning authority, may we joyfully leave it at the altar of this place this morning that we might sacrifice all only to gain Christ only to be found fellowshipping in His kingdom, only to be joyfully surrounding the throne as representatives from a nation or a tribe or a tongue in this earth, unified in Christ's blood and glory, singing, Holy is the Lamb, worthy of praise that was slain. He has destroyed every last enemy from the kings to death itself in order that God's glory and manifest consummate plan of trans-historical purpose might be fulfilled in the eyes of all who have eyes to see, in the ears of all who have ears to hear, that we might praise you forever. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.